Hello, I'm Jonathan Rogers. Welcome to the Habit Podcast. Nancy Guthrie is an exceedingly gifted Bible teacher and speaker. She puts on biblical theology workshops around the country, or in any case, she does when there's not a global pandemic afoot. Nancy has written I don't know how many books and Bible studies. Her most recent book is Saints and Scoundrels in the Story of Jesus. Rosaria Butterfield has said, Saints and Scoundrels in the Story of Jesus is convicting and comforting at once, reminding all true believers that God's family is rough around the edges and held together by grace. Also, Nancy Guthrie is just a sweetheart and a joy to be around, as you'll hear from this conversation. Nancy Guthrie, thank you so much for being on the Habit Podcast. Well, I'm so grateful you even want to talk to me. <laughs> and not just on the podcast, but in the room. I know. Which is amazing. Give, I, I was looking at your, um, at your uh, speaking schedule. I'm amazed that you're here on a Friday. <laughs> Uh, it's a rare Friday. I am at home, but I am speaking yeah. this weekend. It's just that yeah, well, it's local, so gotcha. I get to sleep in my own bed tonight, so I'm uh-huh. thrilled about that. Um, and um, and so, uh, thankfully, you had to go to Trader Joe's this morning, and the studio is near well, Trader Joe's. Yeah, exactly. Well, had you know, Trader Joe's has the best price on roses for Valentine's Day. Did you know? <laughs> no, I didn't know that. Now you know. Okay, so yeah, now I have a new way of recruiting um, writers to my podcast. <laughs> exactly. Um, hey, you're going to TJ's anyway. Studio's right there. Come Why don't you just come come record an episode? Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, man, so so this in, intense speaking schedule, um, a trip to TJ's this morning. Yes, and and then a um, a party tonight for 22 people. Yes, you're a busy woman. Uh, now the main thing I gleaned from this is I'm not in your. Top 22 maybe friends. Maybe you should mention the party because maybe somebody will listen to this who didn't get invited and now they know <laughs> I had a party. Well, all but 22 of the people who are listening to this will, <laughs> okay. will have not been invited. Okay. Uh, at most, 22 listeners will have been invited okay. to this party. Um, no, I, I'm, I'm liking to imagine that if you had invited 23, yes. I would have been on the list. Yes. Well, keep imagining. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, so... Um, Let's start there. I mean, this incredibly busy schedule. When do you write? I mean, you've you've got two books coming out this year. Yeah. When do you write these books? Well, I don't always travel this heavily. Uh Um, So, I, you know, I'm always looking out into the future in terms of um, blocks of time that I can focus on that and do that. Blocks the of time. Is, when you say blocks of time, you mean days and weeks, not uh, hours, blocks of hours in the day. Correct. Yeah. Well, a little bit of both. But, you uh-huh. know, when I'm working on a project, you know, I'm getting up in the morning and making some tea and going to my desk for a while mm-hmm. and then maybe having some breakfast and then maybe 10 o'clock going for a walk in the park. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of the day, I'm like chained to my desk until David comes in and it's gotten dark outside and my office is now dark. Uh And he sees my face by the glow of the computer (laughs) screen and says, you know, hey, how about some dinner? And um, but, yeah, I've just never understood people who talk about going away to write Mm -hmm. uh, because my writing life just has to fit into what my daily life mm-hmm. and and my schedule. And actually, that's better because I need ideas to marinate and I need my big wall of bookshelves. And so writing for me has never been a like go away to do it, focus only on that. But it does look like, you know, one or two full days writing 
you know, in this block of time when I can really focus. Mm -hmm. And do you have uh, rituals or liturgies that that get you? you Maybe I should. I'm not sure I do. do. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, you know, I am realizing as I write that more than ever before, I, you know, I'm a victim of our modern uh, scrolling culture. Mm -hmm. And I will find myself, I'll be working on a, I'll, working on a project, and I just want to jump to something that's easier to think about. Yeah. Like, I get to a part where I kind of know what I want to say, but I'm struggling to find the words or the way to express it or the ideas. And so, I've just developed this instinct, well, let's just see what's going on over there at Facebook. Uh-huh. And it's it, that ability for long-term focus... I just, you know, we hear these people talking about how it's changing our brains, mm-hmm. and I feel that yeah, oftentimes. Do you? Oh, absolutely. As a writer, that just when it gets difficult, I just want to jump to something. Oh, I'll check my email, you know, mm-hmm. and answer an email, and that doesn't serve me very well. Yeah. Or, or maybe it does. Maybe my brain needs a break to come back and make a fresh go at it. I, I'm not sure, but I certainly do feel that. I, I don't doubt that your brain sometimes need to, needs a break, but I find it hard to believe that the break it needs is Facebook. You're probably right. Um, you know, there there are um, probably what it needs is a walk outside or yeah. something like that. I mean, I, the, there's something about that. I don't know if the word is pseudo stimulation of social media that that's not refreshing to the brain. I think. I think that makes complete sense. I do find, like when I'm working on something, I'm just, I feel like maybe maybe what I'm writing is all just sounding like something I got from a book and not just talking straight to people. Mm-hmm. I go for a walk in the park over at Edwin Warner Park with one of my friends, and she'll say, what are you working on? And I'll say, okay, I'm writing this. And just that process of explaining to her, apart from the books, apart from the mm-hmm. words I already have on the page, yeah. here's the point. Yeah. That enables me to then go back to my desk and just say it more clearly, more plain spokenly, uh, yeah. whatever it was, just by having the process of in a relaxed environment, trying to verbally express to somebody else what I'm trying to say and yeah. what the main point is. Yeah. Uh, Tom Wolf, when he wrote, um, uh, I, it, it was a. It was like the first big um, uh, article he wrote about car culture in Southern California in the '60s. Um, and so his his publisher, who I can't remember who it was, maybe Esquire magazine, sent him out. Paid for paid for hotel rooms. They they you know did it. Basically, they invested a lot of money for him to go write this thing. And so he just was just flattened by writer's block when he got there. And um, he wrote to the uh, he wrote them and said, "Hey, I can't write this. You know, uh, you need to find somebody else to to write." And they said, "Well, we can't because we've already paid a photographer lots and lots of money to take these great pictures, so we can't cancel the thing." Um, and and what they ended up doing is, is Tom Wolf said, "Well, I'll tell you what. I'll just send my notes to you, and somebody else can write the article." And so he he wrote. I can't remember what the guy's name the 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 editor but he said dear martin or whatever it was and then he starts writing his notes and there it was wrote through the night <laughs> and and yeah. then and then and sent it off to, to what, martin what is that is that that it wasn't the pressure or yeah that, that he perform? thought that it was, was what you said i'm, yeah. I'm going to express this to a person not to the american public because american public's hard to write for 
But your friend in Edmund Warner Park or or um, you know this or one editor, he didn't he didn't think he was writing the article. So basically, the the editor took the dear Martin or whatever off the top and published it. <laughs> wow, the way he wrote it, <laughs> and he wrote it in one night after after Struggling. weeks of thinking he couldn't write it. Um, so I think that's such an important insight that that you're. I think what you're saying there about talking about it with your friend, that's because that's all you're doing anyway when you're writing is you're talking to somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've I've told this story probably four times on this podcast, but I'll tell it anyway because it's a good story. Um, I'll be the judge of when that. I was writing. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. <laughs> Would you tell me if this is a good story, Nancy? Okay. Um, when um, when I was writing my Flannery O'Connor book. Um, oh, let's just stop right there. That that sounded a little earlier. You were like accusing me of boasting, <laughs> and I'm just saying, starting a sentence of when I was writing my Flannery O'Connor Connor book, it yeah, just right. sounded a little, little lofty. But go ahead. Yeah, well, you you'd be amazed at the lofty things I can say. Okay. Um, the um, so I was writing my Flannery O'Connor book. Um, yeah, me too. And uh, and so it was just struggling with it. I, you know, I'd been in 20 months into it or something like that, and uh, I was bowling with Andy Osinga. And he's like, "What are you working on?" I said, "I'm working on this book about Flannery O'Connor." He said, "What's like? What's? Tell me about it." I said, "It's it's for the Christian person who knows they're supposed to like Flannery O'Connor, but just can't get there." And he goes, "Oh, that's me." And I was like, "Really?" And so then every day I just thought, "What does Andy Osinga need to know about Flannery O'Connor today?" And I wrote that book for one person. <laughs> actually, I I don't think many more than one people have actually read it. So that's that, maybe that's <laughs> worked out. I don't well. even know if the guy I wrote it for read it. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But, but it helped but just, you. What's that? It helped you to Incredibly. just say, okay, I'm going to explain this to this person. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it made me feel like spending a few hours with Andy Osinga every day, which he didn't have any idea that this was going on. And so, you know, I thought we were closer friends than we really were because I was thinking about him every day. Anyway. Um, the So when you talk about I, – I, I so relate to this idea that you get to a place where it gets hard and you want to find something easier to do. Um, one of the and, and you're kind of writing because because you you're doing these these uh, everything you write is based on scripture and, mm-hmm. and um, biblical teaching biblical teaching okay and so research is a necessary part of what you do it's most of what I do yeah you know people ask my husband all the time uh, about my writing mm-hmm. and he's the one who pointed out to me. Uh, I've heard him say, most of Nancy's writing looks like studying. Uh-huh. Uh, and I suppose that's one reason I can't go away to do it. I mean, because writing for me, I think most people think the person who writes a book is someone, especially the kinds of books I write, is someone who becomes an expert at something, mm-hmm. and so then they write then about they write, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think most of my books have come about because I, I identify th- something that I think I want to learn that. Yeah. And my way of learning it is to commit to write a book about it. Uh-huh. Because you study something very differently that you're going to have to communicate to someone else mm-hmm. than you do just, you know, out of a little bit of curiosity to kinda know about it. Mm-hmm. And so what that means is I'm not generally writing from a a place of expertise, mm-hmm. but I'm writing as a fellow Learner, yeah, and so that means most of my writing process does look like study, figuring, mm-hmm. figuring something out. And for me, figuring out a passage of scripture, and when I say figuring out a passage of scripture, I'm trying, I'm, I'm reading it 
and I'm trying to understand what was the divine and human author's intended message for their original audience? Because that's got to be the first step mm-hmm. for me. Yeah. But then I don't want to go immediately from that to saying what it's going to mean for us today. Okay. Because I want to take another trip first. I want to go through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and say, okay, so what difference does the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ make on this passage? And then I'm prepared to say, okay, so what is the import? What is the application? What is the implication for me Mm -hmm. and for those that I know that I'm writing to or speaking to? Um, So that's my... So researching, for me at least, and you can tell me if this is true for you, is a lot easier than writing. Yeah, I suppose so. Um, I guess, so. yeah, for, it, it, you're not creating. For me, when I hit a hard patch in writing, one of my go-to things is, let's I'll do research, research more. Yes. Yeah. Sometimes I do find that I'm like researching, research. When I've really already, like, mm-hmm. I'll realize how much time have I spent trying to figure out this one little question that's really not that important? Mm-hmm. And I have to go, okay. Just let that one go. This and, is procrastination. And get back to, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Research and, becomes and because, procrastination. Because research is part of the job, yeah. um, it feels like an okay. Like, yes. You know, playing online dominoes, you know it's procrastination. <laughs> yes. And, but it's more respectable to do a little more research. Yeah. But I'll realize I've kind of gone down a rabbit hole that yeah. really didn't require that much time. So, so how do you um, – I'm always interested in, to, to, to know um, – how do you flip the switch from being a consumer, a person who's who's taking in information, taking in stories, to, okay, now I'm going to produce something or I'm going to, to generate something? Or I think for me, it's when I realize that I have hit upon what's going to be the main thrust of whatever chapter I'm writing. Mm-hmm. And for me, a chapter is actually usually first a message. So I'm thinking. What do you mean, a message? Um, a Bible teaching message in a situation where I'm going to be teaching the Bible. Oh, because okay. so of many of my books are first that. Okay. Which actually, which a lot of times, like I don't want to turn in a book until I've said it out loud mm-hmm. in that speaking environment. Yeah, that makes a lot sense. of times, you know, being in front of a group of people makes me emphasize something mm-hmm. that I didn't originally when I wrote it, or reveals to me a a jump in assuming their understanding of something that yeah. I realize maybe I've yeah, got to yeah. put some steps in there, but it's because faces are looking back at me like, I'm I'm not following you here. Mm-hmm. I think more though what it does, it adds more emotion to my writing because maybe I'm just s- stating something when I've originally written it, but in that moment I realize, oh, Here's where it's really connecting with people, mm-hmm. with their hearts, with their lives, with their emotions. And I've got to do more with that, not just in the moment teaching, but in in writing too. Yeah. So kind of got off course with your question. No, well, no, well you but, you're on to the question I want to right. talk about. But I think, you know, when you're when when you're teaching, a lot a lot of Bible teaching I find can be a series of interesting ideas. Mm. And that's not how I want to teach. Okay. I want you, when you've come, and then you walk out and your wife says, what was that about today? I want there to be 
a, a really clear sentence that you can say, it was about, mm. and I want to have been so clear in my teaching that you can articulate that. Mm-hmm. So what that demands of me is I've got to get really clear on that. Okay. I've got to get crystal clear on that. Maybe even a written out sentence uh, of this is my point. And then what's going to flow out of that is then my outline because I want my outline to all serve serve that main point. That saves me from going on a bunch of rabbit tails in my writing. Yeah. It helps me with, you know, a lot of times, because we've done all this great research, we have so much more material than we could ever put in. Yeah. And so if it doesn't serve my main point, if it doesn't drive toward what I'm calling people to do, to think, to believe, to accept the way I'm calling them to respond, it's easy for me to say, not necessarily easy, but clearer to me, Uh okay, I just have to set that aside. That's not making it in. Because it's not yeah. getting me where I want to go. Yeah. So I want to have this really clear sense of what my main message is in this chapter or this message. And so that's where I really flip the switch. That, that's when I move from the research to because then I've got my main point and my sub points are flowing out of that. And then I'm beginning to think to myself, sometimes I actually write the conclusion. Mm-hmm. At the very beginning, because mm-hmm. once again, it's setting a target for me. Yeah. I know where I am headed. Uh-huh. And then I have to figure out how am I going to get into it? How am I going to set it up for people that they care to learn or they care to take the journey with me of the story or whatever it is? And I think it's got to it's got to resonate with them in a way that it connects with the question they've had, mm-hmm. with an experience they've had, with a need they have. Yeah. So sometimes that coming up with the introduction that does that takes a really long time. Yeah. Maybe a few walks in the park, maybe a few conversations with my husband. Um, And that, it can't just be, you know, like tell a joke at the beginning. No, I want want that to be actually what drives people through my points and to what I'm calling them to and where I'm landing and – this main point that I'm having, mm-hmm. I want all that to work together. So, and this, so one thing I, I, I may not have understood when uh, the main point you're talking about, yes, is is that does that develop as you're as you're speaking, or you're saying no. before you speak? It develops at the very beginning before I even yeah. create that chapter or that talk. Right. So I'm trying so, to understand. yeah. Let me give you an example. Yeah, Maybe that'll help. Uh, so I'm thinking about. Uh, um, a talk on Paul okay. that is in uh, my most recent book called Saints and Scoundrels. And so it's the final chapter. And so here's Paul. I think we don't tend to think of him as a scoundrel. We would think right. of him more of a Saint Paul. Yeah. But, you know, my – so the way I started the chapter was if you ask people in the first century right after Jesus, who is the last person you think will ever become a Christian, mm-hmm. they would have said – Saul of Tarsus. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, then I walk people why they would have thought that, you know, understanding yeah. Saul and his hatred. I wanted them to feel what I read about in Acts 8 and 9, where it says that he was breathing threats and murder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I want them to feel that. But all of this is leading to my main point, which I had discovered. Uh, that was really centered 
in this verse in First Timothy where he calls himself the worst, other translations, the chief, or another translation, the foremost of sinners. Mm-hmm. And then he says why God saved him as that chief, foremost chief of sinners, that he would be made an example of, and the way I put it in normal terms was an example of the generosity of the grace of Jesus toward the worst of sinners. And this means that the last person you think will ever become a Christian, whether it's someone in your family or someone you see on the news, or if it's someone you see in the mirror, Mm -hmm. that is the very person that God's grace is enough to save and that he he loves to save. Mm -hmm. So it's not till I get to that, that clarity of the point of the passage and going to be the point of my talk, then I can go back and put the whole thing together. Yeah. Is that helpful? Sure. So let's talk about the difference between writing a talk and the difference between writing a chapter and a book. Okay. Well, um, I was in a conversation with someone just the week before last, uh, a well-known pastor that I was interviewing for my podcast, and he was making that point that a talk is not – writing. And I I know that's what everybody says, uh-huh. and I think that is likely the case for a lot of writers and speakers. Uh-huh. Maybe I have fooled myself into thinking that I'm a little bit different from that. Uh-huh. But honestly, my my chapters, I'm talking to someone, kind of like you said uh-huh. you were talking to Andrew Osenga, but my... My talks and my writing is – you'd have a hard time finding uh-huh. much difference uh-huh. there. I think the good thing about that is I hear from a lot of people who say to me, I felt like you were just talking to me. Uh-huh. So for me, I, there isn't a huge well, difference, I, you know, maybe I, until after my editors get a hold of yeah, it. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I was going to ask a question about editors. But but I, I do think just from – Knowing you as a person and reading what you write, it does feel like you have a consistent voice, right? That it's good. I think, it, that, I think it, that's it, good. That's the the written Nancy sounds like this Nancy, so that's good. Um, and, and not everybody gets there. Um, have you ever had an editor come back to you and say, um, "This might work for a talk, but it's not working here"? Have they ever said that? No, really. Okay, because I have helped pastors and sort of public speakers with books before. Um, and sometimes there is a, a huge gap. Huge gap. I uh, have done that, too, with other people's writings mm-hmm. and feel that huge gap, too. Yeah. So because I get the, that. And some of it has to do with humor, especially. Yeah. Like I can think of one particular person that I was going to maybe help him write a book. And the big issue was, how do you make his humor come across? And the... Uh, the project didn't end up happening, and maybe that was for the best because yeah. that would have been a ch- been a challenge. Yeah, I think I do think that there is. Um, so, you, as you said, humor. Th- there are speakers who their effectiveness um, derives in in large part from a charisma that is not something that that translates. Tra- it, it comes into a, onto a page, and so when when I you know if I were a charismatic speaker. And I'm telling you a story that, about something that happened to me, and you're eating it out of my hand. When I put that on paper for somebody who doesn't know me, 
I just don't care. I mean, I, I, I remember helping somebody with with a book once. I was like, I don't care about any of these stories because I don't know mm. you. And if you were if we were in the same room and we were and and you'd been my pastor, I may find this fascinating. Or because I'm so I'm on your team, right? I'm with you. Yeah. So yeah. you know, I get a lot of. I'm sure you probably get a lot more than me. People who come and say, I want to write a book. Mm-hmm. You know, how do I get started writing? But I don't know anything about writing. Um, but I've got this story or whatever. And some of my first advice is always try to write an article about it mm-hmm. or try writing a chapter about it and see how it's received and welcomed by people who don't know you. Mm-hmm. Because I do think a lot of times people have an incredible experience and people who know them, who see what they write on social media or whatever, they're saying, you should write a book. Yeah. What they mean is... Your experiences are significant, and maybe they mean, and the lens through which you are able to articulate some significant things about it in writing mm-hmm. are helpful or meaningful. But really, the big question in regard to publishing is, does anybody who doesn't know you, right, are they going to be drawn into it? Are they helped by it? Are they interested in it? And so yeah. that's that's a major hurdle between somebody with a an interesting story and somebody who that story can become a published book, yeah. especially by a commercial publisher. Sure. Yeah. Um, you should write this down for your grandkids. That's very different, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And and that's very legitimate, right? I, I, wish, totally. I, I wish everybody would write down everything for their grandkids. Well, my first book, honestly, it was about something I didn't think anybody would ever uh, p- publish. Mm-hmm. And I had to make the decision is this going to be a worthwhile effort for me if it's mm-hmm. only for me? Yeah. And nobody ever publishes it. And and for that project, I determined, yes, it is. Yeah. I need to get so solid on these truths at mm-hmm. this point in my life that the discipline of writing it out in such a way that is so clear I can explain it to somebody else, that's going to prove beneficial to me even if it never gets published. Uh, yeah. But for many people, they might start out thinking that's the case but once they put the work into right. it the you know the reality that nobody wants to publish it is crushing yeah um, Seth Godin talks about the smallest viable audience you know when he says you know when, when you are you know making something you you know try to come up with a number you know what is the smallest number of people that I, that that it would be worth it for me to do this and he's talking about money you know basically right. if, if you've got an idea that you can sell you know what's the smallest number of people that that you can sell to and still survive? Um, now in writing, very few of us sell enough of anything to survive. And so um, the um, but I think it's a really helpful exercise to say what's what's the smallest number of people to read this that would be worth it. And as you as you said, once you get into it, you might discover that that number is larger than you thought because it or might be smaller. Well, I, I just mean the the number <laughs> the number of people that you might put the effort into. Yeah. You know, well, anyway. Um, all right. So, are we done talking about public speaking? Is there anything? I mean, is there any insight that you've gotten about from from public speaking that has influenced and impacted your writing? I mean, you've already talked about this to to, to a certain. Degree. Yeah, I think that sense of what connects mm-hmm. is is surprising. So, for example, I've got a book coming out later this year called "God Does His Best Work with Empty," mm-hmm. and one of the reasons I'm writing a book on this is that I used that line in an earlier book and message. First of all, I had used it. My husband and I host weekend retreats for couples who have lost children. Mm -hmm. And for 
the past 10 years, I've used this in a message to them talking about the empty place in mm-hmm. their lives that mm-hmm. they feel feel like will never be filled. Yeah. And I've used the statement, God, actually, you, you think your emptiness is your greatest problem, but God looks at this empty place in your life and he sees it as his greatest opportunity mm-hmm. because God actually does his best work with empty. So I've seen it resonate there. Yeah. But then I used it in a book I wrote a couple of years ago called Even Better Than Eden. And when I gave that message, that's that's the line that most gets tweeted yeah. and pictures on of it circled <laughs> in Instagram yeah. and people telling me after, I mean, the first time I gave the message, I, I just saw it, that the women, they were coming up to me afterwards saying, empty, you know, that's me. And this idea mm-hmm. that God could work in my emptiness. So that's what actually then led me to then, okay, there's something here, but I discovered it mostly from saying it and seeing what happens in a room Mm -hmm. and amongst people. And so then that became the basis for a book. Yeah. I love it. That I wanted to explore that idea more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay, um, we're we're about to run out of time, but I still still haven't gotten to something I really wanted to talk to you about, and that is as a – Bible teacher, can you talk to me about how Scripture has fired your imagination? Or mm-hmm. you know, uh, let's there's there's if you need me to ask it a different way, I can do that. Well, I don't think of myself as being very imaginative, although mm-hmm. maybe I am. Um, <laughs> when I think about that book, even better than Eden, you know, each chapter I am tracing the whole story of the Bible through the lens of a particular theme, and. So it's very much based on scripture. So when I think about imagination, I think making up stuff. Right. And so um, imagination, I think, is more than that. that in a sense, the, the I'm, I'm drawing a big picture. Yeah, let me yes, hear it. It's, it's um, being able to see something that's truer than what's in front of your eyeballs. Yes. Well, and so like so when you were just talking about uh, uh, Saul breathing threats and murder. Yeah. You know. So so we've got Paul. In in whichever letter you know, saying I'm the chief sinner, chief of sinners, is that Timothy? Yes. Um, that is that's that's an interesting image, but hard for us to imagine, right? That he that's do you really mean that, Paul? We don't right. think so. You're just exaggerating, yeah, yeah, right? And then breathing threats and murder, <sighs> feel yeah. that, don't we? Yeah, and 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 you you having the vision to to. To see that, I mean, I'm not obviously you're not the first no, person ever to see but that. Very but much but with, that's, that's an imaginative act. Well, and I was trying to imagine. Okay, so what's this look like? So he's got this letter in his, and I wrote it this way. He's got this letter in his pocket from the Jewish mm-hmm. uh, synagogue leaders, and he's on his way to Damascus, and he's going to present it to the synagogue there, mm-hmm. and he's going to say, "Okay, start giving me some names. Yeah. Who are the people who show up at your synagogue who are talking about yeah. Jesus?" And then he's going to go to their homes and wake them up in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. And grab mom and dad, and he's going to put them in chains. Yeah. And in chains, he's going to march them back to Jerusalem, where if they make it through that trip, mm-hmm. they're going to be put to death. So I suppose that required some imagination, it did. did it not? Because not yeah. all of that is in the text, and yet it's it's indicated in the text. But I do think my goal for readers, and, and my goal in this that book so much was, I feel like a lot of these biblical characters were kind of still stuck on the felt board of people's mm-hmm. minds. Mm-hmm. That we there's stories we heard in Sunday school, characters we learned about in Sunday school. If you went to Sunday school, that just became very one dimensional. Yeah. 
So I suppose it, it required imagination to draw out, okay, well, what made Saul, who became Paul, what made him so hateful? Yeah. What was it that in his in in his life in his and and for Saul it was actually his understanding of the Jewish scriptures, mm-hmm. you know and that he yeah it wasn't that he didn't know the scriptures no he knew them a whole lot better than you and I do yeah. but it's the way he read and understood them and so that means okay so how's that going to change and I realize okay it's got to be a revelation Jesus has to reveal himself yeah. which of course he did yeah so you got to stop thinking of yourself as a person who's not imaginative because that was just an, okay that was just a very I imaginative. see I think of myself more rather than imaginative as curious uh-huh are those two things related maybe maybe yeah yeah I, I think you know I mean what really prompted this most recent book is there were people that I was just curious about like yeah. like John the Baptist. You know, yeah. eating locusts and honey, and he's <laughs> he's out there in the wilderness where there, you know, there's no Chick Fil A and there's no yeah. bathrooms, yeah. and all these people from the cities are going out into the wilderness to hear him preach. Mm-hmm. So, is it because they love his message? Well, they couldn't have, <laughs> because his <laughs> yeah. message is like the axe is being laid to the root of the tree and the fire is yeah. getting kindled. And yeah. repent, mm-hmm. you must repent. And so he's saying everything about your life has to change. That's what mm-hmm. repentance means. Mm-hmm. That couldn't have been a welcome message. So, for me, I think, okay, this begins with curiosity. Yeah. I want to understand what was so compelling about him, and yeah. what is this – What? why is it that here's John the Baptist, and when he's still in his mother's womb, he recognizes yeah. Jesus, who's in Mary's womb. Uh, what is it with this John the Baptist that when he sees Jesus walking toward him, he recognizes who he is, saying – uh, behold the Lamb of God who takes away yeah. the sin of the world. He, he he sees this about Jesus, but then he's in prison, and he sends his disciples to Jesus asking, uh, are you the one? Yeah. So, wow. you know, it was my curiosity, how, how, how did those things transpire in terms of his confidence yeah. about who Jesus was, calling people to repentance because the king is coming, but then getting to this place wondering, Jesus, are you, are you who I thought you were? And so it was my own curiosity about that that then yeah. becomes. I'd never of a book. thought about curiosity and imagination as being tied, but the, the way Maybe you're talking about are. there, it's that's the only way you can answer those questions. It requires some imagination, and I and I don't mean you're making stuff up. I'm I mean to envision what you you're think seeing through what the, is being clearly revealed. Yeah, try not try to stay faithful to it. Seek mm-hmm. to stay faithful to, to it. But yet, fill in – maybe the imagination comes in just making them full-orbed people, mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. with what, what, what shaped what their motives are yeah. and their, their feelings, uh, whether those are feelings – whether those that's solid confidence in who Christ is, skepticism about who he is, um, a firm de- determination. He is not who he says he is. He, yeah. But what shapes that? Um, I think that that was really the case for me. Uh, I wrote about Zacchaeus. So uh-huh. I'm thinking about Zacchaeus. We know him as, you know, that the wee, little, wee man. little man. But like, That was my favorite Bible story when I was little. Was it? I just loved it. But I wondered, why does he want to see Jesus? Yeah. And so it's through scriptural study to realize, oh, so there's another tax collector who left everything to follow him. Does does Zacchaeus say there must be something about Jesus that would make leaving all this money making behind interesting? But then I wonder, did he also hear some the story Jesus told? I mean, because in his day, uh, tax collectors were always the butt of the joke. Yeah. 
and Pharisees were always the heroes. But here's about this story Jesus told, <laughs> in which actually yeah. the, the the Pharisee is the one who goes away, you know, and, and the tax collector, this publican, is lifted up as the kind of person who can have fellowship with him. And yeah. that he hears Jesus has parties with tax collectors. Yeah. Are these – are? I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. But I, right. I guess there's some imagination in asking the question, are these the things that shaped in him this desire, I want to see Jesus? Yeah. All right. I could talk to you all day, but we're running out of time. You have more important I, people I tell you coming. What, is that if, it? What you could do is invite me to one of your parties, and then we can talk some more. We can finish this <laughs> the conversation. The table's full. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, next question. Last question. I always have to end with this. Who are the writers who make you want to write? Well, the truth is, when I come upon a writer who makes me want to write, I'm embarrassed to tell you this, but I think the reality is I get their book, and it sits on the shelf, and I don't want to read it because I've read some of their stuff before, and I know that reading their book is going to make me feel less than. Mm-hmm. I, I think I want to be that good of a writer. and Because I don't actually think of myself as a writer. I know I'm on a podcast about writers only because I have written books. I think of myself as a Bible teacher and, mm-hmm. and that writing is a method through which. But when I read a beautifully crafted sentence and paragraph in a book, I think to myself, wow, that person's a writer. I'm not a writer, so I tend to feel intimidated. Um, you know, there would be certain theological writers that don't necessarily write like that, mm-hmm. but that I th- I think more, I want to understand the scriptures mm-hmm. that deeply to write like that. And uh-huh. so... Who are they? Uh, you know, someone like Greg Beale, who understands biblical theology, which mm-hmm. I'm seeking to understand more and more of, someone who has that kind of deep understanding. I want that. Um, But like, I can think of a book I did put off reading this last summer. I was so glad when I finally opened it up, um, a book by my friend Jen Mm Pollock-Michelle. And she wrote a book on paradox. And I just knew it would be brilliant and interesting, but also beautifully written. And I love that book. And I I did end up thinking, wow, I wish I could kind of put together some sentences and paragraphs like that and, and ideas like that. Yeah. Have to listen to the Habit podcast next Monday. Are It'll you going be, to talk to her? It's her. Yeah. Awesome. Talk I bet she wasn't you. sitting across from you, though. She was not. Okay. All right. Hey, thank you so much for being here. Thank you here. so much. This and, is so uh, fun. I hope you uh, have a great time at Trader Joe's. Trader Joe's is the place to be. Is it not? <laughs> Trader Joe's is but great. But take your own bags. They're going to look down at you if you don't. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Have you uh, Have you been to the one over in... I haven't. Oh, parking. Better. Amazing. Better. It's amazing. The Rabbit Room has partnered with Lipscomb University to make this podcast possible. Lipscomb has graciously given us access to their recording studio in the Center for Entertainment and Arts building. We're so grateful for their sponsorship, their encouragement, and the good work they do in Nashville. Special shout out as well to Jess Ray for letting us use her song Too Good as part of this podcast. Visit JessRayMusic.com to hear more of her beautiful songs. The Habit membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co. This podcast was produced by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. All our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. 
To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate. Thank you.